Well, we turn for our sermon this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, where we'll look at verses 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit this morning as we come to study your holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. May He open it to us and apply it to our hearts, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. In the wake of the Reformation, one of the first things that signaled that a church had adopted Reformed principles in the Protestant gospel was the moving of the pulpit to the central position in the church. Now, architecture always communicates what is most valuable to us. If you go into any city in the world and look at what is most prominent in that city, it will, in the main, tell you what is considered most valuable in that culture. Or conversely, if you look at what is given least attention, what is simply utilitarian, it will generally communicate to you what is considered to be least valuable. And it is the same within individual buildings as well. The architecture of our buildings communicates something about the function of that building and what its intended aim is. One of the most dramatic illustrations of this, I think, is the bank that I used to use uh, in Edinburgh. It was a grand 19th century bank that was literally a temple to money. It had been built in the Greek Revival style, and as you went into it, you walked past these soaring columns, and you entered into a vestibule, an an antechamber through which you walked before coming out into the grand banking hall that had these soaring walls going up to a, a Tiffany ceiling. And as you walked in past the pillars, as you walked through the antechamber, the noise of the outside world faded away, and as you went through the second set of doors, you entered into these hushed tones of what is really nothing other than a sanctuary. And maybe we don't have buildings that are quite so ostentatious today, but I think the principle is the same. Our architecture communicates value. And it's particularly true, of course, in churches. What is most prominent in a church, what your eye is led to when you walk through the door, will generally, not always, but generally tell you what is considered most important 
in the life and ministry of that church. So, for instance, if you go into a Roman Catholic church, you will see an altar front and center because the most important thing that happens in that church is the sacrifice of the Mass. That is the central and most important event in the worship service. And that was the reason why when the Reformation took hold and churches moved away from the sacramentalism of the Roman Catholic Church to the gospel centrality of the Protestant doctrine, anchoring themselves not to a repeated sacrifice of Christ, but to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ at Calvary, that altar was exchanged for a pulpit. The pulpit had always been present, but it was always to the side, in a position subordinate to that of the altar. And so now, it was brought front and center so that anyone walking into the church understood immediately that the single most important thing that happens in that church is the preaching of God's Word, the central event of a Protestant worship service is the preaching of the Word of God. And that makes sense when we remember just how strongly the preaching of the Word is described in Reformation thought. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question 83, we are asked, what are the keys of the kingdom? And the answer is, the keys of the kingdom are the preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both preaching and discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. And the next question asks, how does preaching the gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is, according to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the anger of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. And then it concludes with this thought, God's judgment, both in this life and the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. That's strong. In the Second Helvetic Confession, Heinrich Bullinger went so far as to say that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. And that when the Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. It is in keeping with that thought that the Puritans would refer to preaching as prophesying. Not that they thought new revelation was coming from God, 
but rather that when the Word of God is rightly preached, it is as powerful and effective as if the apostles and the prophets were physically standing among us proclaiming the glories of Christ. You understand, this wasn't just one big power trip on the part of Reformation preachers. This was born out of a conviction that the most important thing in all of life is to hear the voice of God through the proclamation of His Word. And all that to say that this is exactly the point that Paul is making here as he addresses Timothy in these five verses. In the face of all the trials and difficulties that Timothy faced as the minister of the church in Ephesus, the most important thing that he could do, the most valuable thing that he could devote himself to, was the preaching of the Word of God. And not only that, but the preaching of the whole counsel of the Word of God. Look at verse 2, and how Paul describes the preaching task that he wants to see as the central mark of Timothy's ministry. He says that Timothy should be preaching the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul wants Timothy's commitment to preaching to be unshakable. And he wants Timothy's commitment to preaching to be driven by a deep conviction that it is the most important thing his congregation needs. And so, he wants Timothy to be a man committed to preaching in season. Now, that's probably the easiest time of all to preach. Right? It describes those sweet seasons in a preacher's life where sermon preparation is just a joyful delight. It's sweet seasons when when writing sermons, that the, that the thoughts come flooding into the head almost faster than the fingers can bring them out on the keyboard. Those times where the preparation of, serve, of sermons is in that study as much an act of worship as it is when the preacher is standing in the pulpit, or those soaring seasons when the preacher standing in the pulpit can almost tangibly feel the Holy Spirit lifting him up and bearing him along as he is proclaiming the Word of God. Those seasons when the words of the preacher lands on a congregation that are expectant, on a congregation that are hungry and, and thirsty, eager to hear more from their God as His Word is preached. So, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, preach in season, right? Lean into those beautiful, wonderful seasons. Take advantage of them, Timothy, and milk them for all that they have got. But also preach out of season. Timothy, he says, press on in those hard seasons, those grueling times in a preacher's life, when every word in his notes has been hard fought for during that week. Press on in those times when you stand in the pulpit and it feels like your mind is just mud and you can't think of what to say or how to articulate it properly. Press on in those times 
when the congregation sitting before you just seems indifferent to what you are saying. See, it's Spurgeon put it like this vividly. He says, going into some assemblies, this is a, a lecture to students, he says, going into some assemblies, you find that they are as cold as ice wells. When you begin to preach, it's like speaking inside a steam boiler. No living hearts respond to your heart. They are a sleepy company or a critical society. You can see it, and you can feel it. And it's absolutely true. There are some times when I have preached, and it feels like I'm inside of a steam boiler. What he's saying is like, it feels like I am the only one who can hear what I'm saying. Everybody else is as cold as ice, or worse, Spurgeon says, a critical society who only seem to be listening to catch you out. Right now, I'm not saying that's here, of course, although it varies from week to week. Preachers can tell if they have been prayed for during the week. But even in those seasons, Paul doesn't want Timothy to just shrug and say, well, what's the point? To just leave it and say, well, how about I just write for a while? Or how about we just go through the liturgy for a while, but I just take a break for preaching? Paul says, no, press on, out of season. Press on. Don't value the, your ministry by the reception that it receives. Don't assess your gifts by the praise you get at the church door. But of course, knowing the situation into which this letter has been written, it's likely that Paul's not just thinking about what happens within the congregation. He knows that there are going to be in season and out of season politically. Times when Paul can stand, Paul or Timothy or, or any preacher can stand proclaiming the gospel without any fear whatsoever, like we do this morning. I have no fear that the Georgia State Patrol will come through that door and arrest me for preaching the gospel. This is, this is in season for preaching. Right? We can do it freely. We can do it publicly without any reasonable fear. For our brothers and sisters in China, it is distinctly out of season. They preach the gospel, but they know that very well there may be police coming through their front door and taking them away. We have prayed and prayed for our brethren in the early rain covenant church who have experienced tremendous oppression and surveillance coming from the police. But here Paul says, regardless, go on. You, you preach on brother, he says. You, you preach on, my child, in the, the faith, because whether or not the world likes it, preaching remains the single most important thing that your congregation needs from you. And so, Paul urges him, preach in season, out of season. But notice, he also tells Timothy what he wants him to preach. And he wants him to, to have a preaching that is that is well-rounded, and as we said, that is coming from the whole counsel of God. How do we know that? Well, look at the three words that he uses to describe it. Paul wants Timothy to exhort his congregation. Now, that exhort, we don't use that word a lot, and when we do, it's, it's, it's quite formal. 
But the Greek word that underlies our English translation conveys encouragement or, or even comfort. So what Paul is saying is that Timothy's preaching, really, remember, these are all general principles to be generally applied. All faithful preaching is to bring the balm of the gospel to bear on a congregation that is sin-sick and world-weary. Timothy is to exhort the congregation. He is to encourage them and, and comfort them. The faithful preacher points his congregation back to Christ and reminds them again and again of the riches of the salvation that is theirs in Christ. Timothy is to to stand before a people who are worn down by the heaviness of sin, by the heaviness of their own sin, by the heaviness of the sins of of others. He is to stand before a congregation that he knows will be discouraged by the opposition that they face because of their allegiance to Christ. The preacher is to stand in his pulpit knowing very well that there may be people here who are questioning today whether following Christ is really worth the cost. This is not unique to first century Ephesus. It is part of life in these last days, as Paul describes it, these days of tribulation. We all get worn down. We all feel the weariness of life in this fallen world. We all get discouraged when we see the sin that remains in us. We all grow tired in the fight to put our sin to death. And in it, the devil comes and he whispers to us. Just like we were looking at in Sunday school this morning, he comes with that same question and says to us, did God really say? Is this really all worth it? Why not just give it all up and go out and eat and drink and be, be merry? The faithful preacher is to help those who are downcast and discouraged, setting their eyes on Christ again, reminding them of the surpassing riches of the gospel, reminding them that through the sacrifice of Christ, we who have faith in Christ have been truly reunited to God standing and exhorting them, encouraging them, comforting them, that in Christ the deepest desires of their hearts have been granted, and that we who have faith in Christ have been released from slavery to sin and have been given true life in union with Christ. What Timothy is to do, as Paul tells him, to exhort this congregation What every preacher is to do is we are called to exhort the congregation is to regularly remind them that Jesus meant it when He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. But that's not all that Timothy or the faithful preacher is to say. The focus is not simply to be on a therapeutic ministry. There are times when the congregation truly needs to be comforted from the pulpit, but that is not all that they need from the pulpit. But rather, the faithful preacher is to comfort and encourage the weary, but also compel them on to a thoroughgoing understanding of their new life in Christ. And so Paul says to Timothy that as well as exhorting the congregation, he is to reprove them and rebuke them. And these two words are closely related, not quite synonyms, but but close. And we know that in Scripture, repetition equals emphasis. 
And so Timothy is being commanded to preach in a way here that he makes sure that the sin of his congregation is exposed in his preaching. He's to preach in a way that draws out that conviction of sin amongst his hearers so that they do not grow comfortable with their sin, but rather they are, they are, they are compelled to confess it and repent of it and seek the help of the Holy Spirit in a pursuit of holiness. And he is to preach in such a way that it is clear to the congregation that those who come to Christ is to submit to Him wholly and fully. So, in other words, the preacher is to, is to assure the congregation that Jesus meant it when He said, "'Come to Me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" But He is also to remind them that Jesus didn't stop there, but then the next sentence says, "'Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wonderfully gives us rest. His yoke is easy, His burden is light. But what is a yoke? It is an instrument of slavery, right? The, the, the ox that is yoked is directed then by the one who is steering it. That's the image that Jesus gives of this restful life in union with Him. We have an instrument of control put on our shoulders. Now, it's not a drudgery, right? That yoke is easy, Jesus says, but yet it is there. And so, Timothy, the faithful preacher, is to, is to comfort the congregation, but to remind them that they are compelled to be, as we saw a couple of weeks ago from Romans 6, that they are compelled to be slaves of righteousness. Or chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's servant, that our life now in union with Christ is to be one of service to Christ. Or we could say the faithful, faithful preaching compels the people of God, as James would put it, to show their faith by their works. That's what we're talking about. But notice even that even here, and really probably especially here, Timothy is never to beat down or berate his congregation. But instead, he is to do all of this. He is to conduct his preaching ministry, Paul says, with great patience and teaching, or as another translation puts it, with great patience and careful instruction. This preaching that Paul is commending to Timothy, this preaching that the New Testament is commending to the church, does not browbeat the congregation in either direction, right? So, it doesn't berate the congregation for not grasping the gospel well enough. You, you'll find that tendency in some areas that, that the preacher will berate the congregation for not getting the gospel Right? They, they, they don't understand the riches of, of, of grace. They don't understand the beautiful intricacies of the, the gospel. But, of course, to berate somebody for not understanding grace is, is one of the most logically inconsistent things that we can do, right? And so, he is not to, to beat them down for struggling to comprehend the riches of the gospel. Also, faithful preaching doesn't 
tell off the congregation from the pulpit, for not applying the gospel to their lives as they ought and demonstrating their faith by their works, but rather what Paul is describing here is the preacher as a tender shepherd, as a patient teacher seeking to cultivate deep godliness in the hearers, that with patience the preacher is to say the same thing again and again and again and again to a congregation that are forgetful, to a congregation that are slow to learn, but with great patience, simply bringing them back again and again to the Word of God, praying by the, by the grace of the Holy Spirit that the needle might get nudged just a little bit more, and the congregation might grow just a little bit more in their understanding of the gospel and how it applies to their lives. And some, what Paul wants to see here is pulpits that are marked by full gospel preachers. When we think about the term gospel preaching, it, it often it, it brings a certain kind of preaching to our minds, doesn't it? But when somebody asks, does your preacher preach the gospel? Sometimes they're asking, is there an evangelistic invitation at the end of every message? And they say, does your preacher preach the gospel? They're saying, is there an invitation? Or does every sermon have the plan of salvation included in it? Of course, that is a very truncated way of understanding preaching the gospel. We have four gospels in our New Testaments, and they contain a lot more than John 3.16. To preach the gospel is to preach more than just the way of salvation. And what is the gospel? It is not the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ. Now, it is that, but it's more than that, right? If you stop there, then you've cut it off and you have missed so much about what is actually the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. The gospel is that through the forgiveness of our sins, we are united to Christ, we enjoy communion with God, and we have been given a new life in fellowship with God, released from the constraint of sin that we will enjoy forevermore. So, what Paul is urging Timothy to is that full-orbed gospel preaching, that he is to remind them of the, of the invitation of Christ to come in. He is to come to weary sinners and remind them again of all that Jesus has done to bring them to God, to wash away their sins. But he is also to to tell them of what that man must mean for their lives if it is to be credible, if they are not to be the hypocrites that we have seen him right against these past few weeks. Really, all of this is, is summed up in verse 5 when Paul says, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Right? We read that, we think of Billy Graham, we think of tent revivals, Right? We think of door-to-door evangelism or personal evangelism, but really you understand when, when Paul is saying to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, he is urging him on to a ministry that is focused on the proclamation of the evangel in all of its facets, not just telling people how to get into the kingdom, but telling them what life in the kingdom is, is like, preaching both sides, the indicatives of God's love for us in Christ and the imperatives of the life that must now follow. And notice why this is so important. Verse 3, 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And as we just said, this is what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Why is Timothy to devote himself to this full or preaching ministry? Why is he to dedicate himself to the supremacy of preaching and the worship of God's people? Because there will be in these last days a steady stream of Christian hypocrisy. And as the Heidel Catechism puts it, there is an opening and a closing of the kingdom of heaven that comes through the preaching of the Word. William Still, who served the same congregation in Aberdeen for 52 years, wrote in his little book, The Work of the Pastor, He said, it is to feed sheep that men are called to churches and congregations, whatever they may think they are called to do. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats and let them do it in goatland. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. Do we really believe that the Word of God by His Spirit changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the Word of God. Now, William Still famously, when he arrived at Gilcomston South Church in Aberdeen, preached the church empty. His first few months, years, was one of seeing his congreg- the congregation that were there when he arrived increasingly alienated by his refusal to preach little conviction-light, feel-good messages, but instead devote himself to full or verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter preaching through the whole Bible. And there will be at times, there will be times when the preaching of the Word is popular, when we will have healthy churches full of men and women who long to hear a word from their God, who pray for the preaching of the Word, who come to church expectantly, not as consumers looking to be entertained, but as worshipers listening for the voice of their God. There have been seasons in the life of the church when the preaching of the Word has had not only that place of architectural centrality, but true heart centrality. But there are other seasons, like the one at the beginning of Willie Still's ministry in Aberdeen. Maybe even the season that Timothy was going through in Ephesus, and I think probably like the one that we are going through now in our nation, when the preaching of the Word is little thought of because, as Paul says in verse 3, people would rather have teachers to suit their own passions. Times when preaching is little thought of because people would rather feel good about themselves than be challenged to see more of Christ and apply His law to their lives. If this congregation in first century Ephesus was to survive and thrive, if this congregation in 21st century St. Simon's is to survive and thrive, if the church in the West is to survive and thrive, then there must be a primacy of preaching and a longing for the Word of God to be heard in solid preaching. Notice this is a solemn charge that Paul gives to Timothy here. If you look at verse 1, you realize that this is the strongest instruction that Paul has given Timothy in this letter or will give him. 
He charges him, note verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is not pious advice. Paul calls the Father and the Son as witnesses to the charge that he is giving to Timothy. This is a solemn charge. That while Timothy must keep in mind all the previous exhortations in the letter, he is to make sure that preaching is always front and center in his ministry. Preaching is the radical act of Christian worship. It is the central point in our worship services because it is here that the people of God hear the voice of Christ. It is here that the sheep hear the voice of their good shepherd as Christ comes through His Word to lead them and feed them and protect them. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we give You thanks for for this instruction in Your Word. We thank You that You do not just leave us to imagine what might be good to do in worship services, but You have given us clear commands. Lord, help us to value preaching. Help us as a congregation to value preaching and to pray for preaching. Help me, Lord, to be faithful in executing this solemn and serious task that I have been called to. We pray for a revival of preaching throughout these uh, United States. We pray that there would be a, a deep conviction arising and that through the preaching of the gospel, we might see the church flourish. Father, do it, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.